0: Uh, Good afternoon. If I haven't met you before, my name is Mike. Um, I'm one of the elders here. Uh, And it's great to be with you together. As we start, as Johnny said, we're starting a new series in the book of Ezra. Um, So if you have a Bible to hand, I'd love you to turn to Ezra. If you've got one of the blue church Bibles, it's on page 472. Um, If you don't have a church Bible, if you're on a phone, you can probably just look it up. Um, If you've got a normal Bible, if you're not sure where it is, it's kind of in between Chronicles and Psalms. So you sort of dig around there and you'll find it. So Ezra. Now as you look that up, just wanted to let you know what we're going to do this afternoon as we start. Um, Ezra is a fascinating book. Um, There's lots that we can learn from it. But the big thing is that it points us to to see God for who he is. Particularly a, a God who comes to rebuild and restore. Where things are broken, where things aren't working, where things aren't the way they should be. We're going to see how God rebuilds and restores, how He rebuilds His temple so that He can be back in, in present before His people, and how He restores the heart, the hearts of His people. And I get Ezra; we might not be as familiar with it, so it might stretch us a little bit. But that's a good thing. We want to read the whole counsel of, of God's word and understand and learn as much as we can. Um, So we're going to dive into it and and pick up a few things. But as we do, I thought today it would be great to start by just setting the scene so we sort of understand how we've got to where we are in the history of God's people. And we're going to start diving more into the details next week, where Johnny's going to take us through the first chapter. Uh, but I thought it'd be great if we, if we just sort of set the scene, understand what's going on, and help us understand a little bit more as we head into, into this book. And the first thing to say, as, as you've probably seen, it's on page kind of 400 or whatever. So it's slightly earlier on um, in, the, in the actual Bible physically. But chronologically, it's actually right towards the end of the history of God's people. It's around the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, that sort of period. Um, so that's where we actually end. It's, it's almost one of the last books before Jesus' time. So it's good to understand that's where you are as we head into the book of Ezra. And the big thing that that we're going to see in in this context as we come into the book of Ezra is this question, this statement. The people of God are not where they are, are meant to be. The people of God aren't where they're meant to be. Why? Because they're in exile. This exile has gone on for 70 years, almost a generation's lifetime. They're not where they were promised to be in the land that God had said they would be in. That is where we're starting in this book of Ezra. And so I want us to trace the history of the story of the people of God to, get us, to show us how we get there. Firstly, to help us understand the context of the book. But secondly, as we trace the story, I think it's going to draw out some of the big themes that we're going to see throughout their history that Ezra is going to pick up on. He does a lot of this. He's going to show us how a lot of their history is going to tie together in this book. And as we go through this sort of mini Bible overview, I, the key thing I want to happen is, is this. I don't want it to be a mere historical exercise where you just sit there going, oh, these are interesting facts. But I want to sort of immerse your, I want us to immerse ourselves as though we're almost sitting in exile listening to this story. So I want you to, as we start, imagine that you've been banished somewhere. Okay, here's, here's a way to think about it. Anyone ever been in detention at school? Oh, you're such good people. Oh, here we go. Everyone's owning up now you've been in detention at school. Um, if you've been in those, you're, you're sitting there, all the kids are playing outside in the playground, and you're sitting there on your own, in this classroom, and you're writing on a chalkboard. or Probably not chalkboards anymore, right? I had a chalkboard, so I had to write what I'd done wrong, and you, and you stand there. And then the kids come in the window, goes, go, na na na. nah, 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 nah. Do you ever have people, your friends who do that? Um, they make you feel really great. Uh, and, and you're sitting there, and you're thinking, I should be out there. Why am I here? This isn't where I'm meant to be. You keep looking at the time, watching it tick over, thinking, how much longer do I have to stay here? Now, that's a small glimpse of what it feels like to be in exile. Sitting there 70 years, watching season after season go. Spring, summer, autumn, winter keep going, coming, and going. And you're sitting there feeling abandoned. You're feeling lost. You feel out of place. The Persian people around you are going, na, 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 na. The good times have all gone, and there is little hope. That is the setting as we come into Ezra. But then just imagine, as you're sitting there in exile, somebody comes and tells you, this isn't where you're meant to be. They start telling you the story of your people, the story of who you are and your purpose. Sort of a, bit, a little bit like Moana. Anyone watch Moana? So I've got toddlers, and my whole world is Disney at the moment. I've seen Moana about 30 times. Anyone top that? It's, it's fun. Um, but there's a scene when she finds out the history of her people. Oh, we're not meant to be stuck on an island. We're actually meant to be out there exploring with seafarers. Moana, say hey. I'm not going to sing it, it's terrible. <laughs> what am I doing? Um, and so everything changes. As soon as she understands who she is, with seafarers, it changes everything. She gets on a boat with this little weird chicken, and they head out into, into the ocean. For somebody in the exile, knowing your history is going to change everything. And just a point for us here. In our culture today, we do we're sort of doing this weird thing where we're almost trying to ignore our history and trying to sanitize it. But actually, for us, the Bible it, it really matters to understand our history because it shows us who we are, what we need, and where we're headed. And as someone in exile, as they hear the story of the past, it's going to drive them to ask, keep asking this big question: Will the promise of God come true? Will the promise of God come true? Okay, so have that in mind. Just try and immerse yourselves in, in this exilic era, and we're going to go right back to the beginning, right back to Genesis, and start to trace the story of the people. And as we do, we're going to pick things out. So here we go. I've, I've, we've got some things to so to keep you engaged. There are going to be some things that pop up here. Right, she just there. Um, so we start with Adam and Eve. There they are, Adam and Eve. Sorry, I'm I'm not very artistic. These are very simple icons, but hopefully it makes sense. Adam and Eve, there they are created. They're blessed in God's presence. They're they're God's people. He's created them. They're in God's land. It's so good. They can walk with God. They are in his presence the whole time. And there's a promise there that they could enjoy all of God's goodness forever. That is where they started. But then they sin and they turn against God. I'm not sure that's exactly what the tree would have looked like. It's the closest thing I could find. But there is this breakdown in their relationship. See, no longer are they welcome in God's presence or land. No longer do they sit under his blessing in his presence. No longer are they God's people. And as a sign of judgment, they are banished from his promised land. You see, it's almost like the very first exile. It happens right at the start of the Bible in Genesis 2 and 3. And from then on, the story of the Bible is God trying to make a way for the people to return back to Him, to come back into His presence. Now, imagine you're someone in exile, hearing this early story right at the start of the Bible, that you were made in God's image, that you were created to be with God, but in there, there's this new dynamic, a pattern that you started to see to see happen, where there's a breakdown in our relationship with God, because of our sin, because of our disobedience, our pride, our idolatrous hearts. And the sign of judgment is exile. And there you sit thinking, we are sitting under God's judgment right now. But in it, there you hear that hope, there's this dynamic where God wants to bless his people. He wants to bring them back into his presence. This is something for us all to remember. God desires to bless his people. God's not someone who wants to, to punish people and send them all into exile. God desires to bless his people. He is always a God of mercy and hope who wants to call his people into blessing. If you're not a Christian here this afternoon, I want you to see that as we trace this story. So there they sit, the person in the exile hearing this story and then they hear the story of Abraham. Things start to get a bit clearer. Abraham, there's the old man. Things have gone wrong with Noah, the Tower of Babel. Humanity is on this destructive spiral. And so God calls this man Abraham. And there he establishes a promise with him, a covenant with Abraham and his wife Sarah. That God will establish him as a nation to himself through this man, through Abraham's offspring. As numerous as the stars. And he's going to gather them in a promised land. Do you see the people there? The land there. And God will bless them and dwell among them. He's going to be present with them. That's the same pattern that we saw in the garden that Adam and Eve lost. God wants to restore it. This is a huge promise. But so far you wonder, how is this going to happen? Because humanity's their record so far is not that great. This is what we looked at a few times ago. It's a song that we sung that Johnny led us through, Grace Alone. God makes it clear that this covenant that he has with Abraham is not on Abraham. I will, is his cry. God is going to make this happen. It's not based on Abe or his performance, but on faith in God's promise to him. And there is hope, particularly when Abraham and Sarah at the ripe old age of 100 have their own son, this little baby, Isaac. We're actually going to study more about Isaac uh, next term, so more about him later. But now just imagine, you're that person sitting in exile. You've heard about this destructive pattern and cycle of humanity but there, you hear this story of this one true God of the universe, who's made a promise to your great, 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 grandfather, that we would be a great nation, that we, he would bless us and take us into a promised land, that he would be present with us. And to imagine you are sitting there in exile, thinking, "Man, that's that's my heritage. I'm a part of that. That's who we are. A people of promise." Wouldn't that bring some hope in exile? It's starting to become clearer for this person, particularly with this concrete promise that is built upon God's word. But then, surprise, surprise, things go wrong. No surprises there. And the promised people of God end up where? In Egypt. Here's a pyramid. In Egypt, they aren't where they're meant to be. They were closer to the promised land, actually, in the time of Abraham. Abraham. But now they're in this foreign land. Not only that, but they're enslaved by this cruel king called Pharaoh who makes him work and work and work. Who actually even kills the firstborn sons of the Israelites for population control. And so the people cry out, God hears them. Why? Not because they deserve it, but because of God's faithfulness to his promise that he made to Abraham for his love and his mercy for his people. So he calls a man, Moses, to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And in that, God rescues his people. He reveals himself as the great I Am who will come to rescue his people and carry them out of Egypt through the Red Sea into freedom. There we go, there's the Red Sea. And then they're going to move. There we go. They go through the Red Sea. Oh, yes. Spent ages doing that. Uh, just imagine that. For, in, for someone in exile, there they are sitting in Persia under this rule of another foreign king. Can you picture how this story would be so encouraging for them? That this isn't the first time that the people of God have been where they've been in the wrong place. Under the rule of a foreign king. God is faithful. He rescued his people once. And the question they're sitting there asking is, is he going to do it again? Ezra's going to show us that in the coming weeks. And then they end up right at the foot of Mount Sinai. And there God's law is established and given to the people. One of the functions of the law is to distinguish and set his people apart from everybody else. To say, you are my people. That's what holy means, set apart. You are my holy people set apart in covenant relationship with God. The same covenant that he introduced with Abraham is being established all the more clearly through Moses. And God's, God calls his people to be holy, for I am holy. I want you to live distinctly. This matters for us. people past, God's people, past, present, future... Holiness matters. We are called to live distinctly from the world, and you're definitely going to see more of that later on in the book of Ezra. But it's not just that. Then the tabernacle is established. It's like a tent, a big tent. As God them, rescues them, He remains with them. He walks with them as they wander through the desert, and He builds a tabernacle, a huge tent. That's what He calls He calls them to build. And God dwells. His presence is with His people as they wander. And that's why you get this Festival of Booths. You might have heard of it, the Festival of Booths. And you're going to see that in Ezra 3. It reminds the people of God's great salvation, of who God is, the great rescuer, who's going to be present among his people. So here they are now in Moses' time. They're hearing this story of how there's this covenant confirmed by the law that God is the great rescuer dwelling with them in his tent. But then they venture finally into the promised land with this man, Joshua. They conquer this land flowing with milk and honey. And then right at the end of Joshua, you hear the story of how all this land is distributed among the people. This is looking so good. God is with them. The people are gathered to him. They're coming into the promised land. The covenant seems to be fulfilled, right? But then things break down again. In Judges, you hear how the next generation are raised not knowing what God did. They didn't drive out the idolatry in the land. Instead, they immerse themselves in it. They start worshipping other gods with the Canaanites. Remember what we said about holiness just a moment ago? They were meant to be distinct. But God's people always struggle with this. And this leads them into a dark place in their history. The people keep forgetting the goodness, the mercy, the promise of God. And they keep turning to other gods. And so God sends judgment upon judgment. N- neighboring nations come and attack them. They, hear, they, they cry out to him. He hears their cries. He raises up a judge. And he rescues them. See, even in dark times, God's care is always there. No matter how far you've turned from God, if you're one of God's children and you cry out to him, he hears your cry. Surely that would give hope to somebody sitting in exile. As they cry out, surely God will answer. He's done it before. But then Judges ends with these chilling words. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And so what does God do? Raises up a king. A king to fight for the people, to lead the people. It starts with Saul, then they get to David. David defeats all the enemies, defeats the mighty Goliath. Gathers the people, he brings the Ark of the Covenant, that's the mercy seat of God's presence, and he brings it right back into the heart of the kingdom. And as they celebrate, David looks across from his palace, and he sees the Ark, the seat of God's presence, in a tent. It's like sticking an honored guest who comes around your house, who's going to stay over over for the night, and you say, can you just hang out in my garage? Or you put up a tent for them and say, can you just stay in my front garden? That's where you're going to be sleeping tonight. That's how he felt. And so rightly, he wants to build a temple for God, a glorious temple, a permanent dwelling place for God to be present with his people forever. God hears that and says, that's great, that's a great idea. Let's set this plan in motion. And he, what he does with David, is he, he's, he reestablishes that covenant that he set with Abraham and says, I'm going to continue that covenant now through you. But he says, you know, it's not going to be you who's going to build this temple. It's going to be someone who's an heir to you. Your son is going to come. He's going to build a temple. David's not going to. But that king will then come, build a temple, and he will reign forever and ever. A king from the line of Abraham and then of David who will reign forever. Enter King Solomon. Here comes the son of David. So much wisdom builds this temple. It is glorious. Supplies come from all over the place, from places like Tyre and Lebanon. Ezra chapter 3, you're going to hear those names again as they rebuild the temple. See, what Ezra wants to do is to say, look, you exiles, you need to see this. See your history because God is continuing it through, through his covenant. The way he built the temple with Solomon, he's going to do the same again with you. And Solomon's fame, is spreads. A queen... Queen Sheba comes to visit. She sees the temple. She hears of his wisdom. And she goes back glorifying God. So imagine you're sitting as an exile and you're looking around. Where is this king in this line of David now? I have this foreign Persian king called Cyrus over me. The promise that started with Abraham, it seems so distant. What do we do with this promise now? Don't we feel that sometimes too? As we journey through this life as Christians, where we feel God's promise is distant. We know it's true, but it feels so distant. What is God doing with this promise now? Is God going to remain present with us? And what the book of Ezra is going to do is going to say, hey, look, point, he's going to point us back to this promise and say, look, don't lose heart. God's promise remains for the exiles then as it does for us today. but you get the pattern by now. The exiles would know this too. We're going to mess up again, we? This great King Solomon, he fails. He marries women from other peoples, from other nations that worship other gods, and he is led into idolatry himself. He was meant to be holy as the king, but he remained unfaithful to the covenant. And Solomon's reign actually ends up in disarray with a civil war looming, which blows up after his death. And the kingdom becomes divided, split, between his son Rehoboam, there we get divided, between his son Rehoboam, who goes down into the south, Judah and Benjamin, those are the two tribes, and the other 10 tribes, there are 12 tribes in Israel, the other 10 tribes stay in the north with a guy called Jeroboam, who was a commander to Solomon, a massive civil war. The unity of God's people is broken. And then you read, this is when we get into one kings, two kings, the, the books that people tend to just gloss over. But what we learn from there is that the, the kings in the north are all terrible. There is this echo throughout as you read it. This king comes, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The next king comes, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It is a depressing chorus. In the south, it's a little bit better. There are some good kings. Because in there is the tribe of Judah the covenant promise comes to the line of Judah and that promise seems to linger so there are some good kings like Amaziah Hezekiah, Josiah but ultimately also Judah collapses as they end up worshipping idols and what happens is in among this, this is when you get all the prophets coming through, right? They start speaking, hey, hey, come on you know your history, you know who you are, you know who God is, how he's rescued you, has been merciful to you in the past why do you keep messing up? Why don't you come and turn back to him? And they keep giving a warning message. If you live this way, God will ultimately judge you. And yet the people keep rejecting God. So the prophets, they start speaking God's word and truth to them, that you're going to be exiled. The Assyrians are coming. This is incredible. Daniel starts predicting the Assyrians are going to come, then the Babylonians will come, then the Persians will come, then the Greeks will come. And history pans out exactly as Daniel says. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, all these prophets, they warn the people, you're going to be taken into captivity and exile, Just like Adam and Eve right at the start, you're no longer going to be in the promised land, you're going to be scattered as God's people, and you will no longer have the blessing of God's presence. Now that's a brief history of the Old Testament. I mean, there's a lot more detail there, you'll know that. But there, imagine as an exile, having traced that story, you're sitting there. You look back on the history of God's people, and you're thinking, there are promises there. There is mercy there. God has shown his love. There's hope there at times when we see God's temple, his presence among his people. But right now, for the exile, they seem like a distant memory. You look around, and what you're surrounded by is ziggurats. Those are like Persian temples. You're sitting under the rule of a foreign king, Your temple has been dismantled like pieces of Lego. The people are scattered throughout the kingdom and they're not where they should be. And I wonder if as an exile, you would sit there looking at the history of God's people and think, we've messed up so many times. In some ways, I wonder if you'd almost think, it might be okay actually, you know, for God not to save us because we've been that bad. Those themes of God's promise to his people, the people, the land, the law, the temple, the king, all of this seems to be gone. And so they sit there asking this question, when will this end? Will God ever bring us home? Will the promise of God come true? And then you hear this. This is where we're going to dive into Ezra. Well done for sticking with me. We're going to dive into the first two verses of Ezra. Just imagine, you're sitting there as an exile, having seen that history, and then you hear this. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord... The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. What would be going through your mind as you sit in exile and you hear this happening? How would you feel? See, this great king Cyrus has just declared that he is going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. The city that was ransacked and destroyed, the Lego bricks that had been dismantled, he's saying, many years ago, he's saying, now I'm going to rebuild it. So i just going to spend a few minutes just in these verses. Great King Cyrus sends out his decree, this edict. He writes it down. It's actually a scroll. A scroll that you basically roll in ink and then you roll it out onto paper. You can actually find the scroll in the British Museum, the Cyrus Cylinder. It sits there. You can go and see it. It's incredible. But can you imagine the excitement as they see that scroll being rolled up? We can go home. As you look out the window, your focus has been on all the things that have gone wrong in your history. The failed kings, the failed people, the destroyed temple and city. And suddenly you have hope. The promise, the covenant of God, God is really doing it. There's just two really brief things I want us to see from these verses. The first is this. God fulfills. Right, is it too early to talk about Christmas presents? <laughs> yeah? Okay. It is too early. Johnny says it's too early. I'm going to do it anyway. I remember as a kid, um, I'd sometimes ask for something way earlier in the year. I'd ask my parents, oh, I really want, want this. Usually around this time, actually. And my parents would be like, some, sometimes, usually they say no. It's like, that's stupid, no. But sometimes they'd be like, that's fine. And there you are, this little kid, you're waiting, you're counting down the days and months, and you're sitting and wondering, will they remember? You get closer to December, it's getting cold. And you're like, oh, will they remember? A little box appears under the Christmas tree. We didn't actually have a Christmas tree. Um, a box appears somewhere. And, and you're sitting there, is that it, is that it? And on the day, you open it. And it's like, yeah, this is it. This is what I've been asking for. And then when I talked to them, they'd, they'd actually planned it for months. They had it, they'd already bought it when I first asked them. They'd always been sitting there, hiding in a cupboard somewhere, so I couldn't find it. But there they were, they'd fulfilled their promise even before I knew it. It was so special, it showed me how much they really cared. It showed me that they meant it. Do you see that in Verse 1 in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. See, this isn't God just coming up with a, a last-minute plan. Oh, I, oh, my people are here. Let me just kind of move them over here. He's not like running down the middle aisle of Aldi last minute, trying to, f- to hopefully find something for me. This is God saying, I, I will fulfill my promise. I always have said I will. I've set it out and planned it out. Here's the, here's the quote. The, here's the word that was spoken to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. You don't need to turn there. It's going to come on the screen. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem. 70 years of exile. Babylon are the ones who take them away. Persia come and take over Babylon and they're going to return. Jeremiah was probably, what, 50 to 100 years before Ezra's time? It's astounding, though. No. This, Jeremiah predicted hundreds of years before, Babylon will be defeated and God will bring you back. But how? This is stunning. It's not just Jeremiah. Listen to this from Isaiah. Again on the screen. Isaiah, again, written about 100 years before Ezra's time. The detail is astounding. This is what the Lord says. This is what God says. Your Redeemer who forms you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by Himself, myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise, turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers. This is the key bit. Halfway down, verse 26. Who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. And the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. And of their ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Who says of who? Cyrus, Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. God has always said, I'm going to raise up the Persian king Cyrus to act as a shepherd for his people. That's crazy, you know? To think that he's going to use a foreign king to bail you out, just doesn't feel, feel right. It's like using a knife to open a can of baked beans. If you ever tried that? It's pretty dangerous. Or like using a sock to drink water. Why, I don't know why you did it. What's going on? It's the, it's the, basically it's the wrong thing to do. It's, it feels completely wrong. Why would God do this? And here's the big thing that Ezra wants us to see. God can use anything, anyone for his purposes. Often actually God uses unexpected means and people for his glory. Why? Because that's how we see his glory all the more clearly. This is God at work. This isn't some humanly devised solution that the Israelites came up with some good idea to escape from Persia. This is God at work. So after 70 years of exile, they're going to return to rebuild the temple. Just a quick note on the, on the 70 years. People wonder when that's exactly meant to be. Some people say it's from Jehoiakim's capture. He's one of the last kings of Judah. That's in about 600 BC. And then, then they start rebuilding the temple in 530 BC, roughly. So that's 70 years. Or it could be the fall of Jerusalem, 586 BC. And then they complete the temple in 515 BC. If you like those details, great. Either way, the point is that God is fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Hundreds of years before, they've already said it. Here is the one true God fulfilling all that he promised. Even after so long, even after so much mess in the people of God, God calls and commands his people to come back to the promised land. Come back because I'm going to rebuild. He's going to rebuild his temple. God wants to come back and dwell with his people once again. That is what we're going to see in the first half of the book of Ezra. Chapters 1 to 6 is all about the rebuilding of the temple, the challenges, the excitement of it all. But it's not only that. He also wants to restore his people. He He wants to call his people back so that they live distinctly. See, we've seen that throughout Israel's history, right? It wasn't the lack of the temple that was the issue. The problem was always in the heart of the people of God. Too often we are tempted to turn away from God to other gods. That's what God's going to show us through Ezra in the second half of the book, chapter 7 to 10. So you have a very brief shape of how it's working out. But the key is this. God fulfills. God's covenant promise remains intact. Even after so long, even after so many failures of his people, even after thousands of years, God is saying, when God says so, it is so. God is going to bring his people back to himself. He's going to be present among them in his temple. He's going to bring them into his kingdom. Don't ever doubt God's word. When we face doubts in our faith, when we feel like we are in exile, whether that's because we failed him and know that we have sinned, or we feel like the world is caving around us and making us feel like we don't belong, turn to God, look to his promise. And know that when God says so, it is so. God fulfills his promise here even thousands of years later. And he carries that promise right through. Right through to Calvary. For us today, when we feel like we have failed, when we battle with our sin, we can turn to the fulfillment of this promise in his son. And know that when Jesus says that you are forgiven, 100% you are forgiven when we feel like the world is against us, when we face opposition, when we feel like we don't belong, when we feel like we're struggling under the rule of some foreign king, look to the fulfillment of the promise that we find in Jesus, who's calling us to a new life in him, who said, the kingdom of God is near. Who says, look, I'm going to conquer death to show you who's the true king of all. We live in his kingdom today. And hopefully that gives us assurance, confidence in the promises of God to say, I am a child of God, I can live boldly and confidently knowing that God's promises will come to fruition. And hopefully that will help us to engage with the culture around us, to live boldly as Christians with a Christian ethic, to live boldly to rebuild his temple, to rebuild his church today, to live boldly as people call to to come to worship Christ. And to call others to worship him. Here's the second thing. Really briefly, just wanted to point out this. God appoints. God fulfills and then God appoints. Cyrus, let me introduce you to Cyrus. Cyrus was a powerful king. He says this of himself, verse 2. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He was the king who defeated the mighty Babylonians who established the rule of great Persia. He had a massive kingdom, the largest the world had yet seen in those times, ranged from the Mediterranean Sea all the way across to Central Asia. A huge kingdom. As an exile, you're sitting there looking at this kingdom, looking at this map and thinking, we have no chance, ever. King David would even struggle here. And as we live in this world, sometimes we can feel that. We look around and the world around us seems so powerful. World leaders look like they control everything. Whether that's through the lens of politics, thinking of the U.S., thinking of Russia and China, or we think through economics and finance, thinking of people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, or the arts and media world, Hollywood, Spotify, Netflix, Korean dramas, they're on the rise. I'm Korean, by the way, if you didn't know. But here's a simple truth that Ezra shows us. There is only one true God and King over all. No matter how powerful they may seem, they are all under God's thumb, under his pinky. Cyrus was mighty. All these Persian kings were powerful. Cyrus's great-great-great-grandson is King Xerxes, who is Esther's husband. He was mighty. But no matter how great a leader's CV, no matter how impressive they seem in this world, they are all under God's pinky. God can move the hearts. Of even the most unlikely people for his purposes. He can move the heart of King Cyrus when he needs. And he uses Cyrus here to rebuild the temple to bring his people back. It's astounding what Cyrus says. Verse 2 Cyrus uses the word Lord here. He says, The Lord, the God of heaven, God's covenantal name. It's as though he's acknowledging that this true God has his people the God who is faithful to his covenant. And Cyrus knows his place. He says, this God has appointed me. He has set me in my place here in the history of the world. He's going to use me to allow God's people to return to their land, to see God rebuild and restore. That's my role. That's what Cyrus is saying. And that's what we're going to see more in the coming weeks as you look through the book of Ezra. Because trust me, Cyrus isn't the only king who's under God's pinky. Ezra shows us that. But look, let me, let me close. We've seen, we've gone through, you've worked hard. Thank you for staying with me because we've, we've traced the history, the messy history of God's people. We've seen how they've ended up in exile. But in this mess we hear this opening of Ezra that God fulfills. He is faithful to his promise, to his covenant to call his people back. And God appoints to use even mighty pagan kings for his glory. There is only one true God. There is only one true king, and that is God himself. Come and behold that God, the one who humbled Cyrus. Come and behold that God who calls us, gathers his people to himself, and says, I want to be with you into eternity. Let me pray as we close. Father, as we look through the history of your people, we see how often we have failed you, how often we have turned away from you, how in many ways we deserve to be stuck in exile, and yet, and yet, you are the God who fulfills. You are the God who says, my covenant is true, I will, when I say so, it is so. Praise you, Father, that you have fulfilled your promise, that you show us this through this book of Ezra. Help us to see that all the more clearly in the coming weeks. And not only that, to see your sovereign power over all people, over all kings of this world, past, present, and future. They are all under your thumb. You appointed even Cyrus to be your shepherd, to bring your people home. Father, help us to see you as the one and only, the one true God, the one true king. And may that give us assurance May that give us hope and certainty as we journey through this life to know that we have a God who loves and calls his people, a God who is over all all of this nation and all of this world. We, We praise you and we seek your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.